Section 2 Europe and the Faith This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe and the Faith by Hilaire Belloc Section 2 Introduction Continued what are the tests of this war? In their vastly different fashions they are Poland and Ireland, the extreme islands of tenacious tradition, the conservators of the past through a national passion for the faith. The Great War was a clash between an uneasy new thing which desired to live its own distorted life, anew and separate from Europe, and the old Christian rock. This new thing is in its morals, in the morals spread upon it by Prussia, the effect of that great storm wherein three hundred years ago Europe made shipwreck and was split into two. This war was the largest, yet no more than the recurrent example of that increasing wrestle, the outer, the unstable, the untraditional, which is barbarianism pressing blindly upon the inner, the traditional, the strong which is ourselves, which is Christendom, which is Europe. Small wonder that the cabinet at Westminster hesitated. We used to say during the war that if Prussia conquered, civilization failed, but that if the Allies conquered, civilization was re-established. What did we mean? We meant not only that the new barbarians could not handle a machine, they can, but we meant that they had learnt all from us. We meant that they cannot continue of themselves, and that we can. We meant that they have no roots. When we say that Vienna was the tool of Berlin, that Madrid should be ashamed, what do we mean? It has no meaning save that civilization is one, and we its family. That which challenged us though it controlled so much which should have aided us and was really our own, was external to civilization and did not lose that character by the momentary use of civilized allies. When we say that the Slav failed us, what did we mean? It was not a statement of race. Poland is Slav, so is Serbia. They were two vastly differing states, and yet both with us. It meant that the Byzantine influence was never sufficient to inform a true European state or to teach Russia a national discipline, because the Byzantine Empire, the tutor of Russia, was cut off from us, the Europeans, the Catholics, the heirs, who are the conservators of the world. The Catholic conscience of Europe grasped this war, with apologies where it was in the train of Prussia, with affirmation where it was free. We saw what was toward. It weighed, judged, decided upon the future, the two alternative futures which lie before the world. All other judgments of the war made nonsense. You had on the Allied side the most vulgar professional politicians and their rich paymasters shouting for democracy, pedants mumbling about race, on the side of Prussia, the negation of nationality, 
you have the use of some vague national mission of conquest divinely given to the various germans and the least competent to govern you would come at last if you listened to such very cries to see the great war as a mere folly a thing without motive such as the emptiest internationals conceive the thing to have been so much for the example of the war it is explicable as a challenge to the tradition of Europe. It is inexplicable on any other ground. The Catholic alone is in possession of the tradition of Europe. He alone can see and judge in this matter. From so recent and universal an example, I turn to one local, distant, precise, in which this same Catholic conscience of European history may be tested. Consider the particular and clerical example of Thomas a Becket, the story of St. Thomas of Canterbury. I defy any man to read the story of Thomas a Becket in Stubbs or in Green or in Bright or in any other of our provincial Protestant handbooks and to make head or tail of it. Here is a well-defined and limited subject of study. It concerns only a few years. A great deal is known about it, for there are many contemporary accounts. Its comprehension is of vast interest to history. The Catholic may well ask, How it is I cannot understand the story as told by these Protestant writers? Why does it not make sense? The story is briefly this. A certain prelate, the primate of England at the time, was asked to admit certain changes in the status of the clergy. The chief of these changes was that men attached to the church in any way, even by minor orders, not necessarily priests, should, if they committed a crime amenable to temporal jurisdiction, be brought before the ordinary courts of the country, instead of left, as they had been for centuries, to their own courts. The claim was, at the time, a novel one. The primate of England resisted that claim. In connection with his resistance he was subjected to many indignities. Many things outrageous to custom were done against him. But the Pope doubted whether his resistance was justified, and he was finally reconciled with the civil authority. On returning to his see at Canterbury, he became at once the author of further action and the subject of further outrage, and within a short time he was murdered by his exasperated enemies. His death raised a vast public outcry. His monarch did penance for it. But all the points on which he had resisted were in practice waived by the church at last. The civil state's original claim was, in practice, recognized at last. Today it appears to be plain justice. The chief of St. Thomas' contentions, for instance, that men in orders should be exempt from the ordinary courts, seems as remote as chain armors. So far, so good. The opponent of the faith will say, and has always said in a hundred studies, that this resistance was nothing more than that always offered by an old organization to a new development. Of course it was. It was equally true to say of a man who objects to an aeroplane smashing in the top of his studio that it is the resistance of an old organization to a new development. But such a phrase in no way explains the business, and when the Catholic begins to examine the particular case of St. Thomas, he finds a great many things to wonder at, 
and to think about, upon which his less European opponents are helpless and silent. I say helpless because in their attitude they give up trying to explain. They record these things, but they are bewildered by them. They can explain St. Thomas' particular action simply enough, too simply. He was, they say, a man living in the past. But when they are asked to explain the vast consequences that followed his martyrdom, they have to fall back upon the most inhuman and impossible hypotheses that the masses were ignorant, that is, as compared with other periods in human history, what more ignorant than today, that the papacy engineered an outburst of popular enthusiasm, as though the papacy were a secret society like modern Freemasonry, with some hidden machinery for engineering such things, as though the type of enthusiasm produced by the martyrdom was the wretched mechanical thing produced now by caucus or newspaper engineering, as though nothing besides such interference was there to arouse the whole populace of Europe to such a pitch. As to the miracles which undoubtedly took place at St. Thomas' tomb, the historian who hates or ignores the faith had and has three ways of denying them. The first is to say nothing about them. It is the easiest way of telling a lie. The second is to say that they were the result of a vast conspiracy which the priest directed and the feeble acquiescence of the maim, the halt, and the blind supported. The third and for the moment most popular, is to give them modern journalistic names, sham, Latin, and Greek confused, which it is hoped will get rid of the miraculous character. Notably do such people talk of auto-suggestion. Now the Catholic approaching this wonderful story, when he has read all the original documents, understands it easily enough from within. He sees that the stand made by St. Thomas was not very important in its special claims, and was probably taken as an isolated action, unreasonable. But he soon gets to see, as he reads, and as he notes, the rapid and profound transformation of all civilization which was taking place in that generation, that St. Thomas was standing out for a principle, ill-clothed in his particular plea, but absolute in its general appreciation the freedom of the church. He stood out in particular for what had been the concrete symbols of the church's liberty in the past. The direction of his actions was everything, whether his symbol was well or ill-chosen. The particular customs might go, but to challenge the new claims of civil power at that moment was to save the church. A movement was afoot, which might have then everywhere accomplished what was only accomplished in parts of Europe four hundred years later, to wit, a dissolution of the unity and the discipline of Christendom. St. Thomas had to fight on ground chosen by the enemy. He fought and he resisted in the spirit dictated by the Church. He fought for no dogmatic point. He fought for no point to which the Church of five hundred years earlier or five hundred years later would have attached importance. He fought for things which were purely temporal arrangements, which had indeed until quite recently been the guarantee of the Church's liberty, but which were in his time upon the turn of becoming negligible. But the spirit in which he fought was a determination that the Church should never be controlled by civil power, and the spirit against which he fought 
was the spirit which either openly or secretly believes the church to be an institution merely human and therefore naturally subjected as an inferior to the processes of the monarchs or worse the politician's law a catholic sees as he reads the story that st thomas was obviously and necessarily to lose in the long run every concrete point on which he had stood out and yet he saved throughout europe the ideal thing for which he was standing out a catholic perceives clearly why the enthusiasm of the populace rose the guarantee of the plain man's healthy and moral existence against the threat of the wealthy and the power of the state the self-government of the general church had been defended by a champion up to the point of death for the morals enforced by the church are the guarantee of freedom further the catholic reader is not content as is the non-catholic with a blind irrational assertion that the miracles could not take place he is not wholly possessed of a firm and lasting faith that no marvelous events ever take place he reads the evidence he cannot believe that there was a conspiracy of falsehood in the lack of all proof of such conspiracy he is moved to a conviction that events so minutely recorded and so amply testified happened here again is the european the chiefly reasonable man the catholic pitted against the barbarian skeptic with his empty unproved mechanical dogmas of material sequence and these miracles for a catholic reader are but the extreme points fitting in with the whole scheme he knows what european civilization was before the twelfth century he knows what it was to become after the sixteenth he knows why and how the church would stand out against a certain itch for a change he appreciates why and how a character like that of st thomas would resist he is in no way perplexed to find that the resistance failed on its technical side he sees that it succeeded so thoroughly in its spirit as to prevent in a moment when its occurrence would have been far more dangerous and general than in the sixteenth century the overturning of the connection between church and state the end of section two